This passage is from Daniel chapter 2, verses 24 to 35 and 44 to 46. Daniel interprets the dream. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah, a man who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you are lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you are watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor in order that an offering and incense be presented to him. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity, am I on? Okay, sorry, sometimes I don't know. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, go on a trip to Bangladesh and India. I spent a number of weeks there. And it was a part of an initiative uh, where essentially Canadian churches were trying to sort out how can we uh, come alongside and partner with local missionaries, local ministry people who are doing uh, outreach ministry to the most far out and remote places of those two nations in particular. And so when I say remote, I mean really remote, like fly into a big city, into a country that's already completely different than anything I've ever experienced, and then get on a plane and fly from there an hour to land on what seems to be just somebody's, like just a field. From there, get on a Jeep and travel a couple of hours, and then in some instances, even get on a boat and go down a river, like talking about people who are way, way out there. In many cases, people who are entirely off the grid. Um, a friend of mine, one of the people on the team, had actually been to one of these villages another time in a couple of years prior, and he was the first white guy that they had ever seen in their whole life, just to give you an idea of how far off it was. And so about five days in, about seven days into one leg of our journey, I remember feeling like I'm not at home anymore. And, and I knew this already, obviously, because I 
clearly wasn't at home and I could look at a map, but, but I had this different feeling. Like it had been about a week since I had eaten any food that was familiar to me. And it's not that the food was bad. I actually enjoyed eating the food there. Um, but the language barrier and things having to go through multiple interpreters, especially when I was in India, just everyone speaking a different language, I was just getting exhausted by this. And I started to ask myself the question, like, okay, how many days are left? Like, are we ever going to get through this? Like, like, how much longer? Like, another, we're going even further up this mountain? Like, I don't even think we can go here. Everywhere we went, they said, oh, the rain's just washed out this road. Like, okay, great, yeah, that sounds good. We're just going to keep traveling along it. I remember thinking in those times, like, is this ever going to end? Am I ever going to get home? Is this, like, all the details, all the itinerary, all these things have just been totally thrown about. And, and then popped into my head this picture of, a red metal cube in the airport that we took off from. It was a Nescafe machine. And I remember thinking before we left, we had a couple of cups of this uh, sweet, creamy, coffee-like dessert. If any of you are really into coffee, then it's just a coffee-flavored hot drink. It's not really coffee. But there was something about it that was like, that's like the last thing I remember that I could actually get at home. And maybe you've been on a trip to a place where all you want is like one small bag of Lay's potato chips. Or, or like your favorite chocolate bar, or you just need something that reminds you of home. And this, this, this coffee machine, I know it doesn't make me sound super spiritual at all, but the truth is, like the thought of getting another cup of that coffee sustained me for another couple of days. And I would say the next day, we're one day closer, we're one day closer. I wish I could say it was Jesus, and I know that it was Jesus who was keeping me going for sure, but this coffee... It was a glimmer of hope. It was, it was a picture of hope. It was, a, it was this sign of like, it's not always going to be this way. Eventually, you're going to get back to something that's familiar to you. And the truth of the matter is, you don't actually have to leave home to feel like you're not at home. The past couple of weeks, we've been looking at the book of Daniel, and we've been learning about how Daniel and the others there were taken from their homeland, and they're being transplanted into this Babylonian culture, and how they'd been attempted to be brainwashed and completely changed, and, and they have this feeling of, I'm not at home, but, but for us, we feel this every day. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you know that, that what we believe and what we practice and the one that we have given our life to, all those ideals bump heads with, with, with the values and the customs and the philosophies of our world. And we feel like, is there ever going to come a day where I can walk into my office and not worry about, about people mocking me for, for what I believe? Or, or we have these days where, where is there ever going to come a, a day when I don't have that same exact fight with my spouse again about that thing? Like, is this always going to be how it is, or is it, we're ever going to get out of it? This morning, I was scrolling through Google News on my phone, looking at the headlines, and it just seems like there were another brand new hundred headlines today that completely... Uh, just have forgotten about all the headlines from yesterday. Some of them carry on, but there's this feeling of like, are we ever going to get a day where there's more good news than bad news? Is there ever going to come a day where we can look and see more good and more compassion than evil and hatred? Like, is everything going to be okay? Are we ever going to experience real, true peace? Are we ever going to have what Scripture calls shalom, right? This complete holistic restoration of all creation and all humanity, everything coming back to be the way that God had intended it to be. Are we ever going to get there? And if we are, when is that going to happen? And is there even a, a small glimmer of hope? Is there any little thing that we can latch onto that'll keep us going? And that's what we're looking at today. Today, in our passage in Daniel chapter 2, we are looking for hope. It's a pretty incredible situation that's taking place in Daniel chapter 2. King Nebuchadnezzar wakes up in the middle of the night after having this terrifying dream. 
so terrifying and so uh, confusing to him that even in the middle of the night, he calls to all of his wise men, his enchanters, his magicians, these, these people that are his counselors, and he calls for them and he says, bring them to me even in the middle of the night. Now, they didn't all come, but some of them did. And when they arrive, um, Nebuchadnezzar interacts with them in a very unique way. When they show up, as was customary, they said, uh, may the king live forever, right? The first thing, these people have been trained to worship the king. They lived for the king. Every morsel of food they had came from the king, so they owed everything to him is how they felt. They said, praise be to the king. Tell us what your dream is, and we will interpret it for you. We will, we, will, we will help you out with this king. And he says, okay. And what he responds probably should have floored them. He says, here's what I want you to do. This is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, then I'm going to have you cut into pieces and I'm going to have your houses burned down and turned into piles of rubble. But if you can do what I'm asking, then I'm going to give you money and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to reward you, I'm going to promote you, I'm going to give you all these blessings. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Now, either these wise men weren't paying attention, or they were trying to call his bluff, or maybe they've spent enough time around Nebuchadnezzar to know that he's always threatening to kill everybody, because their response is, yeah, yeah, king, tell us what your dream was, and we'll interpret it for you. We're here to serve you. Praise be to the king, right? That's their response. But what they missed was that Nebuchadnezzar didn't just want to know what his dream meant. He wanted to know what his dream was. Don't just interpret it for me. Tell me what it is. I want to see just how wise you are. I want to see just how powerful you are. I want to see just how much you know. Have, has all my investment in your education been enough to see if you can even read my mind and tell me what I'm thinking? This gives us a bit of an eye in to the world that Daniel was living in. Nebuchadnezzar obviously could care less for reason or logic. Compassion was not something he had ever maybe even been exposed to in his life. It was never anything he was going to offer to anyone else. He was concerned just about himself. You help me, and if you can't help me, then I'll end you. That's probably what they had, you know, maybe tattooed on his arm. I don't know. But that was his manifesto, right? So the wise men, still with some guts left in them, they say, okay, there's no one on earth who can do what you're asking. Not the right thing to say to the king who's just threatening your life. He says, no king, no matter how great and mighty, has ever asked for something like this. As if they're saying back to him, king, even people who have been more powerful than you, wrong, wrong thing to say to someone who's willing to burn down your houses and cut you into pieces, right? You don't want to say that. He says, what the king, what you're asking us to do is far too difficult. No one on earth could ever do this. Only the gods could do it, and they don't live among us. They don't live among humans. And so you'd think Nebuchadnezzar would say, yeah, you're right. Maybe I'm being a little unrealistic. No. He says, you know what? I first threatened to kill you. Now what I want you to do is go and find every other wise man, every other enchanter, all of these people, and execute them all. That's what we're going to do. I don't understand logically again. How would he ever get the explanation for his dream? But that's not what he's thinking about. He just wants his way and he wants it right now. And so he assigns a guy named Arioch. And Arioch goes out and about and he's looking for these other wise men, enchanters, magicians, uh, and saying that we need to bring you to the king because he's going to execute all of you because these guys couldn't do what he asked. And as he's doing this, he runs into Daniel, right? One of these wise men. Daniel, at this point, had gone through his years of Babylonian training. He'd been educated. He'd been, uh, learned the culture and the, the customs and all these things. And Daniel's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What, what do you mean he wants to kill all of us? Like, what, what now? We have to remember that Daniel was endowed with, given this gift of incredible wisdom and tact. Wherever he went, whoever he interacted with within the king's kingdom, all of these rulers, he had influence with them. 
And so he says, Ariok, you got to buy me some time. Get me some time with Nebuchadnezzar. My assumption here is that Daniel had even had some influence with the king because if the king was in a rage wanting to kill everybody, he still grants Daniel an opportunity to get in front of him that he might interpret the dream. Now you think Daniel would be alarmed by all of this, right? But maybe this is like the 10th time this week that he'd been threatened to be cut up into pieces. We don't actually know. And so he asks for this time and he gets it because he believes that he has a chance. He, he knows the way that God has already moved him through these different days and weeks and years of their time in Babylon, that God had shown up and do, done incredible things before. Of course, God will do it again. Daniel believed that God had put him even in this situation and that there was a purpose for his presence that he might lean in even here. It's incredible to think that Daniel didn't run away and try to escape, but that instead he chose to lean in. He didn't say Arioch and manipulate or leverage his influence with Arioch to say, just tell the king I dropped dead or something. So, and then run away. He doesn't do that. Instead, he says, Arioch, get me, get me some FaceTime with him, the one who wants to slice me up. And so Daniel, in his brilliance, begins to strategize. He comes up with a plan. And what is this plan? It's to pray. He goes to Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah right? The three other guys that were taken with Daniel from the tribe of Judah. And he says, we need to get before the God of heaven and we need to plead with him for mercy that he will give us the interpretation of the dream. And what happens? God delivers. God doesn't just tell him the interpretation of the dream, but God tells him what the dream was. And of course, this is a mystery. And, and beyond that, they're realizing, God, you just saved our lives. Because now we know we already have an appointment with Nebuchadnezzar, and when we go meet with him, we can actually do what he's asking us to do. Their response from that, more prayer. They pray in verse 23, I thank you, and I praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. They give all of the credit to God, knowing that if God did not intervene and work a miracle, if God did not do something supernatural, they were all dead. But knowing that if they gave this situation over to God, that they would have life, and that life could only come from him. It's worth noting here that when Daniel calls on his buddies to pray, he says, we must pray to who? The God of heaven. We must pray to the God of heaven. Now, again, Daniel and these guys had gone through this Babylonian training. They had learned about all the fake gods. They had been given Babylonian names to be reminded of all these gods all the time wherever they went. They had learned the religion. They had learned the processes. But even though they had learned those things and been 10 times smarter than everyone else, they never believed in them. They, they never trusted in them. They never found hope in them. All along, as they were memorizing these passages and these verses and whatever else, they were never convinced that any of them would ever work because they knew that only the God of heaven would be, only the God of heaven was the true God. He knew that God hadn't forgotten about him, and so he wasn't going to forget about God himself. Which means that some of those counselors were absolutely right. Remember the counselor said to Nebuchadnezzar the first time, no one on earth can do what you're asking? Oh, they were a little bit wise after all. Only the gods can do this, and they don't walk, amount, uh, walk among humans. At that time, God didn't walk among humans, but he was interacting with them. Spoiler alert, we're going to learn about how Jesus comes in later and does walk among humans. And it's incredible how this foretells of this incredible story to come. Daniel says, when he gets before the king, there is a God of heaven. 
No one else on earth can interpret this dream for you. No one can do what you're asking. None of your gods. No one else, no matter how wise. But there is a God in heaven who can do what you're asking. He reveals mysteries. Let's pause here for a second. Let's try and personalize this and, and just step out of the big story and see where it lines up or syncs up with what's going on in our own lives. When you're faced with some type of tremendous challenge or trial or difficulty or pain, what's your first response? What's your default strategy? What's, what's your go-to move in all of this? I learned a word this week. This word is bibliotherapy. Essentially what this means is people are finding, trying to find their peace and their comfort and get wisdom and knowledge from books, biblio. Therapy. It's therapeutic, meaning I'm having this issue at work, so I'm going to go and read a leadership book that's going to help me how to help show me how to influence from the bottom up. I'm having challenges with raising my children, and so I'm just going to find a book five days to a new family. Uh -uh, not going to happen in five days. But we go to these books, we go and we find them, right? Maybe you're, you're, you're struggling with anxiety or, or some type of mental health issue, and you just keep going back to pop psychology. Or as you go and interact with other people, they say, well, if you just try these five practices to calm yourself down, you'll be able to solve it. And we know that this, this doesn't work, that there's something about it that just isn't enough. It leaves us wanting more, right? Let me tell you a story about a couple of people I know. There were two women, uh, a woman, a skeptical woman, uh, who at this time in her life was very adamantly against all things Jesus, all things Christian. And she had basically come to the end of it with her husband. And she says, uh, you know, he's lost his job again. We keep having these fights. I'm going to leave him. And so she goes into her place of work and she talks to coworker after coworker after coworker and tells each of them, I'm thinking of leaving my husband. What do you think? I'm thinking of leaving my husband because of this. What do you think? And each coworker after coworker after coworker says to her, you should leave him. You don't need him. He's holding you back. You need to get on with your life. You need to be liberated and free. You need to go and do you for a little while. And then she comes and she interacts with a Christian coworker. Now her and this Christian coworker had interacted before. They wouldn't have called themselves friends, but um, over this issue of not agreeing on world, on world views and perspectives, she still comes and says, hey, uh, Christian uh, co-worker, I, I'm thinking of leaving my husband, what do you think? And the Christian is just caught off guard by this and, and is brokenhearted and her face is like, no, like, I don't know what to say, but no, you can't do that. Can I pray for you? The, the skeptic woman goes, yeah, sure, I guess you can pray for me. She had actually some religious background in her life and most of it was just fake, hypocritical, like, I'll pray for you. You know when you say like, I'll pray for you, but you really have no intention, it's just a really nice way of saying goodbye now, for now, <laughs> right? <laughs> And that was, had been her experience, but this Christian woman says, okay, thanks, let me pray. Takes her hands and prays for her right on the spot. A couple days later, the skeptical woman is totally caught off guard by all this because of her history of hypocrisy and people not following through. And so she calls up the Christian and says, hey, can I take you out for dinner? I want to talk to you about you know, who you prayed to and what you prayed about. I want to explore a little bit of that. Can you, do you have the time for me? Uh, yeah, I have the time for you the Christian says. And so they go out and, and six or eight months later or so, the husband and, and the wife had reconciled their relationship and were both getting in the tank to be baptized at the church where the Christian woman attended. So why did all that happen? Because the world doesn't have the answers and the Christians don't even have the answer other than saying, I don't know what to tell you, but what I do know is who we need to tell this to. And Daniel acted in the same way. He wasn't going to go about his own wit, about his own uh, smarts and wisdom and whatever he had picked up. He's like, we need the God of heaven to intervene here and do something. That marriage was only spared and reconciled and brought back to a place of peace because God intervened and worked something remarkable there. 
Same thing in our lives, whatever our challenge may be. Is our default to go to Him in prayer? So, we have to check out this dream. It's a spectacular dream. We got a little taste of it. This dream is a dream about kings and kingdoms. And so it opens with Nebuchadnezzar standing, looking out at this phenomenal, beautiful, unbelievable tower, this statue that's made up of various precious metals. Imagine looking at something like the Statue of Liberty. The Statue of Liberty was never fantastic to me until I went there and I stood and I looked up at it and I wondered how on earth a hundred years ago or however long ago they assembled all these pieces. Uh, it's probably way more than a hundred years, but a long time ago anyways. How they assembled all these pieces and you see the intricacies of the tower. It's just, it's amazing. So Nebuchadnezzar's looking at this tower and it's made of these precious metals. The head is made of pure gold. The chest and the arms are made of silver. The belly and the thighs are made of bronze. The legs are made of iron and the feet are made of this mix of iron and clay. And as he's looking at this tower, probably marveling at this tower, thinking it's incredible, this rock from out of nowhere comes flying in, strikes the tower in the feet, and the entire thing crumbles to the ground. It's dust and it's rubble. And when the final piece of dust, look at it, falls and hits the ground. A gust of wind comes and blows it all away and there's nothing left in front of Nebuchadnezzar except for this rock. But this rock doesn't stay just a simple rock. It begins to grow and expand and Nebuchadnezzar sees it fill the entire earth, every square inch of the earth. I mean, talk about a dream, right? You ever wake up in the morning and you have a dream and you're like, I, I want to talk to somebody about this, but man, that was messed up. You're like, I don't want people to have an idea of what's running in the back of my mind when I go to sleep and all these ideas that are popping up. I have had a, crazy, a couple of them along the way and sometimes you just ought to just wander on your own. And so maybe this is why Nebuchadnezzar was all freaked out, right? Because he's seeing this and can't make sense of it and he wants to know, what does it all mean? We're going to look at it three ways. What did the dream mean to Nebuchadnezzar? What does the dream mean to Daniel? And what might the dream mean for us? The dream, essentially, if we were to sum it up in one sentence, is that every king and every kingdom is of limited time, except for one. We know from the beginning chapter, from chapter 1, verse 1, 2, and into that passage, most of you probably dug into that in your home groups this past week, we know that what was happening there is that any rule or any control, any power that Nebuchadnezzar had, he only had it because God gave it to him, right? So God allowed this to happen for him to come in and take over from King Jehoiakim and besiege Jerusalem. So there's this idea of God not making it happen, but allowing it to happen that takes place here. But Nebuchadnezzar, in his own mind, had gone and had accrued all of this wealth and all of this power on his own by militant force, breaking in, taking things into his own hands. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that you, king, are the head of gold. Now, as if Nebuchadnezzar, if he didn't know that, he probably assumed it already. Right? The way that this pompous, narcissistic guy is, he's like, of course I'm the head of gold. I'm the golden boy. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows I'm the strongest kingdom that has ever reigned. And then from there, the rest of the body goes into these different pieces of metal. And one thing that we uh, observe from this is that all of these parts are, are materials that are found and fashioned by human hands, right? So the kingdom of gold, the kingdom of silver, the kingdom of bronze, and after this, the kingdom of iron, and then these feet that are made of iron and clay, which is like an idea of a kingdom divided against itself. All of them are valuable, but all of them were found, fashioned, manipulated, put together by human hands. And just like the elements of the tower are 
are made of items that are fashioned by human hands. They're representative of human kingdoms which are formed by human ideas and human strategies and human values and human hard work and all these things. They're still built by human hands. And the thing that Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn is that anything and everything that is built by human hands will not last. It will not stand. It will not persevere to the end. Now, scholars go back and forth and talk about all these things. This is how they come up with all these books to write and whatnot because they're just discussing, well, maybe it means this, maybe it means that. Typically, though, it's most commonly believed that the four kingdoms that are represented here are uh, the head of gold, referring to Babylon, the arms and the chest are referring to the Persian Empire, the belly and the thighs made of bronze are referring to the Greek Empire, and the legs of iron referring to the Roman Empire. Now, this is important for us because uh, even by today's standards, these kingdoms historically are still viewed as some of the most powerful and influential kingdoms of all of human history. So it's important for us to grab onto that. Nebuchadnezzar is looking at this sort of historical timeline, some of which has not even yet come to pass, and then watching it all get destroyed. By what? By a rock that we're told is not cut from human hands. A rock that comes from a completely different place. A rock that represents a kingdom that is categorically different, has nothing at all in common with these metals with this historical timeline. It is completely unlike anything else. And what's amazing is the thought that how could a rock, a simple rock, smash gold into dust or iron or bronze or anything that is stronger? How could a simple rock do that? And so as Nebuchadnezzar is watching this happen, he is learning a lesson that some other kingdom, otherworldly kingdom from another place is going to come in and is going to destroy not just me, but every other kingdom that tries to rule and take over the land. This was a strong and vivid warning for Nebuchadnezzar. Think about this. On one hand, it's almost as if God gave the dream for Nebuchadnezzar's sake, that he would be warned, that he would know how temporary his life and his rulership was going to be, how, how, how that eventually was going to come to an end, not even by this rock that came in, but these other kingdoms represented after it. You're temporary. Maybe a warning that he would turn and repent and trust in, in God, that he would change his character. But on the other hand, maybe it's possible that God gave the dream and its interpretation to Daniel for Daniel's sake. That Daniel, even in the midst of standing in the same room in the presence of the man who's repeatedly trying to kill him, this impossible leader, this dictator, maybe the dream was for Daniel that he would say, this is a ray of hope, Daniel. It's not always going to be like this. A day is going to come where I am going to do something amazing. It's like God is saying this to Daniel. I'm going to do something from out of this world. No one's going to expect it. No one's even going to completely understand it. But I'm going to come in and I'm going to establish a kingdom that is completely different. Daniel, hang on. Daniel, I'm making this promise to you. Daniel, I'm for you. Daniel, just, you got to see this. That is so much more powerful than a coffee machine. And I think that would have fueled Daniel's perseverance. I think that's what it meant for him. What about for us? I think for us that the dream represents all of the hopes and goals and dreams that we've set for ourselves, right? Last week, Vijay, Vijay talked about um, the world's, uh, this, the, what the world presents as being the most valuable things, wealth, fame, power, and beauty, temptations of the world's kingdom, there's this idea that when we look at the tower, Nebuchadnezzar was looking at a tower that's spoken to his life, but if we were looking at this same tower, what would it be built up of? 
as, oh, I want to live in this place, in this town, on this street, in this particular type of house. I want to be making this amount of money by that age. I want my family dynamic to look like this. I want to have traveled to as many countries as the years I am old. All of these goals we set for ourselves, places where we start to put our hope and trust and finances and resources, and we put all of our efforts into this, thinking about them all the time. And then what happens when they don't come true? We're devastated. We're like, what's, wh- that was the most valuable thing for me, the most valuable dream I had, and it didn't come true. Or I failed. What does this mean? Maybe I'm a failure. All these things we place value on, we actually start to find our own identity and our own value in them. It's the temptation of what the kingdom of the world is offering us, and we kind of will do whatever it takes to get them, no matter the cost. We know from this tower physically, or the way that it appeared in the dream, is that there's these feet, right? These weird feet that are made up of a mix of iron and clay, which gives us a, a, an idea that, okay, Iron is very strong, but clay, Daniel says, is very brittle. And when you try to mix these things together, it has some strength, but it's still, uh, it's still fragile. And, and even it gives us this picture of a kingdom divided against itself. Ultimately, what are the feet representative of? Not building li- our life on a firm foundation. So this kingdom of empire, this tower representing the kingdoms and the empires that lived historically, and like we've seen those historically. At the time, Daniel didn't know that they were going to play out because he was looking that way and we're looking this way, like this back to the future kind of trippy thing. But we've actually seen them play out, right? And they're not built on a firm foundation. That's why when the rock comes flying in, it doesn't go straight for the gold or straight for the silver or straight for the bronze or straight for the iron. It goes straight for the weakest link. And when it hits the weakest link, everything else falls down. And in our own lives, we know that if we build our lives on anything other than who God says that we are, anything other than trying to model a life after doing His will, living out His righteousness by the grace of God, if we try to do anything other than saying, God, you first, me second, it's all going to get smashed to smithereens. Just like that rock came out of nowhere. At the right time, God decided, historically, God decided when He was going to make this grand entrance when he was going to send his son Jesus to begin ushering in this new kingdom. At the right time, Jesus was presented to you wherever you were at in your life. Perhaps it's even right now. You're hearing about this other world kingdom and king that's coming in and when he comes into your life and when you hear the message of who Jesus is and, what, and how he loves you and what he wants for you, something changes within you and you realize that he's starting to hack away at all the goals and dreams that you had set up and all that you have left is a picture of him knowing that he's enough. I think this is what the dream means for us. We build our life on anything other than who God says we are on what he wants for us and what he's planned for us, it's always going to be crumbling and falling. We're always going to live in fear that we're going to lose everything. We're always going to have this anxiety. We're always going to have this, this fear that our wealth will be taken out from under us, that we'll lose our job, that we'll drop, fail out of school, whatever it might be. But when we come to him and we say, Jesus, you and you alone are enough, he says, yeah, you're right. And let's walk through this together. And he gives us a new purpose and a new value. We've got to remember the, the rock is not cut from human hands. The rock is cut by God and sent to earth. And this rock is also not a part of the original statue, right? We've got this idea how it's completely other coming in. Why? Because the the thought and the plan of Jesus and who he is and this kingdom he would establish is not a human idea. 
It's one that God has decided and God has implemented and God is working through. It also means that this rock, which has not been fashioned or formed by human hands, is categorically different than every other kingdom, every other dream that we have seen play out in history or the goals and dreams that we've set out in our own life. It's completely unique. Because this rock representing the kingdom of God is not made by hands, we can have certainty that it is not going to have any expiration date. That it'll know no bounds. Now these kingdoms historically had so much influence. They spread far and wide, but none of them covered the whole earth. Right? It says, Daniel says in there that one of the, one of the kingdoms um, did influence the entire earth. Chances are they weren't actually ruling over every part of the earth, but that people had heard words of these kingdoms and they lived in fear even though people had never actually gone there. Again, again, it's categorically different from the kingdom of God because a day will come when people from every tribe, every nation, even more remote villages than the places I had the opportunity to visit, there will be people in all of those places who say, Jesus is my king. His kingdom is here now. And no one can stop that because God's behind it. And you can't stop God. Tried it. Doesn't work. He breaks you down. You and I are in the room today because all of this is true. Right? Think about that. There are people, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people all around the world, sitting in places completely exactly like this or totally different than this, worshiping the name of Jesus, submitting their lives to him. Nobody thinks or talks or prays or worships Nebuchadnezzar. Like if I pulled the room right now, how many of you even think you could spell Nebuchadnezzar? Right? He's forgotten. He's gone away. All these kingdoms, as, as wonderful as they have may, may be, there's nothing more than a textbook that gives us facts about something that happened, but we have a book that shows us how you get life because our kingdom is alive and our king is ruling still and he will never stop ruling. All these other kingdoms, let's compare and contrast to show how the kingdom of God is different than all these others. Every other kingdom is made up of men and women who are willing to do anything they can to do whatever it is that they might lift themselves up. So Nebuchadnezzar was happy to kill anyone. He was happy to take over every town. Why? So that he would be raised up as king. But let's think about King Jesus. King Jesus comes to earth and instead of trying to build himself up, literally bows himself down and lays down and offers himself as a servant that his Father in heaven might be lifted up. All these other kingdoms that are, are created by war and by violence and by, by killing and by murdering, they're led by kings who want to kill. We have a king who was killed that we might have true life. See the contrast in these, in these kingdoms? The kingdom of God is one that is characterized by a king who is merciful and people who follow him that are merciful to others, not those that are vengeful. Our king is loving and compassionate. And so as we follow him and he empowers us, we live out the kingdom values, which is not to hate or not to look for arguments and cause strife, but to be ones who humbly serve others around us. It's made up of people who are meek and who are gentle, who are humble, not people who are proud and do whatever it takes to get to the top, who are trying to climb that ladder no matter the cost. The kingdom of God is different than any other kingdom that has ever and will ever reign on this earth. And you know what? Here's the amazing thing about it. It's actually the kingdom that every single person is longing for. We all want the day when it's true, when everyone is living in peace. 
when we are loving each other, when we don't turn on the news and see more pain, we, we, we're all longing for that. And so, Christians, this is our hope. That the king has come, that he smashed the tower of these empires, and we're kind of in the middle of, he's done it already, he's in the process of continuing to set up this, his kingdom, and there will come a day when Jesus comes a second time and finally establishes his kingdom once and for all. And that's our hope. That's why we persevere. That's why we lean in. That's why Daniel said, even if the king tries to cut my head off, I know that there's a bigger purpose in all of this. No power can ever stop it. How does the story wrap up? With Nebuchadnezzar falling on his face. He saw the tower fall. He hears the truth of God and he falls on his face. And he says, let's praise the God of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the God of heaven. Let's praise him. And then he promotes Daniel and puts him into a higher place of leaders. Now, like I know this is a bit of a spoiler alert, but he, in a chapter, goes and builds a giant tower and almost completely misses the point. So we want to get excited about his repentance, but, but the truth is he still hadn't learned his lesson yet. And maybe for some of us, we hear these warnings, we get this picture of hope and we repent and it's just a small, short-time thing, but, the, but it doesn't actually take root. Is the kingdom of God and its values, has the king, Jesus, smashed your tower, smashed you down from your feet? And, and is it taking root in your life? Is he beginning to rebuild you and restore you to live the way that he wants you to live? As we conclude, I want you to take a list, or take a look rather, at the chart we're going to put on the, on the screen. On the left side, you, you have just a couple of kingdom values of the world's kingdom. On the right side, you have characteristics, components, values, pictures of who Jesus is and what he lived out and what we as followers of him can live out only by his power as we submit our lives to him. I want you to think specifically about an interaction that you might find yourself in this week, whether you go to work or uh, maybe at school or maybe you've got a shared hobby where you're going to be you know, on the ice with a couple of friends playing hockey or whatever it is, where have there been conversations, where have there been places where you've acted more like the left column than you have like the right column? And now to be certain that I'm being clear here, I'm not trying to suggest this idea of moralism where if you go out of here today and you just live more kindly and more loving and more gentle and you're more self-controlled, then everything's going to be fine. No, 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 no. It's not like that. What I'm saying is, as you go into these interactions throughout the week, where you find yourself, are you every moment submitting to King Jesus and saying, Jesus, will you live these characteristics out through me that I may play a role in establishing another square inch or foot of your kingdom? Because we can only do what's on the right. Yeah, what's on the right. If God is supernaturally working through us. And Daniel knew that. And that's where Daniel found his hope. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And, and as they do, I'm just going to pray. Pray into these things. <clears throat> God in heaven, um, Thank you for this picture that you've left us with in, in, in your word. It's so vivid, and, and it actually speaks to us today, and we can look at it in, in its historical context, and we can see, yeah, God, this is actually all true. It actually all played out. But we can't just look at it in the past tense. We've got to look at it right now in the present and in the future. And so, Jesus, my prayers for each one of us, myself included, that even right now you'd begin to speak into us the areas where we need to change. Holy Spirit, convict us 
where are the places that we've held on tight, where we have become so bitter, or we've held that grudge, or we can't forgive. Break down that tower of who we think we are and what we think we deserve, or how we think we deserve to be treated. Break it down and reveal to us the way that you, Jesus, would go into these situations. To be loving, to be gracious, to be compassionate, to be long-suffering, to persevere no matter what the challenge may be. We cannot just do this of our own strength. We, we confess we have no strength, that we need you entirely, Jesus, to be everything. And so now, God, we come to you and we say, please, make it so in all of our lives that we would be able to play an incredible role in breaking forth new ground for the sake of your kingdom. So we'd be lifted up? No. Even if we're completely forgotten, that's probably how it'll go. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, we'll all be forgotten too. But Jesus, your name will never be forgotten. For your fame, for your glory, for your might, for your will. Jesus, all of this we pray in your name. Amen.